Phil's coming on now. Ah, oh, look at him. He's all bald, he's got tattoos, and they're sweat pumping out, and he's jumping up and down, pogoing on the stage. Welcome to another Moshtalgia, where we look back at a selected album which formed part of the soundtrack of our lives in our younger days growing up on the east coast of Ireland. This time, we shave off our hair, join the cowboys from hell, and get our skulls tattooed. We're going to act all tough and disaffected, because we blame our parents for ruining our childhood. Yes, we're looking back at Pantera's vulgar display of This was the follow-up to Cowboys from Hell, which was released in 1990. It was released on February 25th, 1992, and sold just over 2 million copies. It was recorded at Pantego Sound Studio in Texas. It reached number 64 on the UK album charts and number 44 on the US Billboard Top 100 Albums. Marvellous. I have to talk about facts every single week. It's a fact. It is a fact. Facts. This was produced by Terry Date, whose other notable works were Limp Biscuit, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water in 2000 and Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger in 1991. Oh, Bad Motorfinger. Now that was an album. I was reading Rex Brown, the bassist of Pantera. He wrote, well, I wouldn't say he actually wrote, but his words made it onto the page in some form of an autobiography called Official Truth 101 Proof. And judging by what Rex said, they really meticulously went to achieve that clicky, glassy drum sound and that really tight buzzsaw sound of the guitar. (laughs) And yes, Pantera appeared on many episodes of Beavis and Butthead at the time. An homage. Reminded me a little bit of them there when you did it. Totally. Fucker. Tell us some more facts, Adrian. Facts. Did you know that Pantera began as a hair metal glam rock band and gradually evolved to the Pantera we know today? The evolution begins with their 1983 debut album Metal Magic. Just Google the album art there for a laugh. Through to the power metal when they added Phil Anselmo on vocals. Now, Vulgar Display of Power was the band's second major label album. The band are from Arlington, Texas. They were formed in 1981. And did you know that the Longhorn is one of the eight different Texas state animals? I thought you were just talking about yourself again. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) the the Longhorn did jump out to me. Dimebag Daryl successfully auditioned for Megadeth's lead guitarist position in 1989 but he couldn't convince Dave Mustaine to also hire his brother Vinnie Paul. So Dimebag ended up staying with Pantera. They went on tour together when Vulgar was out that year in 92. Oh, I bet they got up to some shenanigans. And in fact, I might mention one of them. (laughs) I'll let you go through that then. Rex Brown was so broke during the Vulgar sessions that his main transportation was a bicycle. And he lived on beer and sandwich handouts from the local corner shop. I think they rented a squat opposite the studio. And then they were racing their car around and doing handbreakers. And they went from 60 to zero very aggressively. Although guitarist Daryl Abbott was credited on the album with nickname Diamond Daryl, during the recording of the album, he had dropped that nickname and assumed Dime Bag Daryl. And bassist Rex Brown dropped the pseudonym Rex Rocker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rex Rocker. Now, you, you must know some other names like that. Ricky Rocket. That's the one I was trying to think of. Ricky Rocket. Tie Me Down. <laughs> tie Me Down. Now, who did Tie Me Down play with? Himself, mostly, but... Warrant. Was that a guess? Yep. You are wrong. Tie Me Down was the lead singer for Faster Pussycat. Pussycat! Oh, faster Faster Pussycat. Pussycat. The 80s, the glam, that was what you had to do. You had to put a, a double K in the middle of your name. You gotta love it. I have to talk about facts. As you mentioned, Pantera blew off steam by playing Chicken Break with producer Terry Date's rental car. This game involved randomly grabbing the handbrake and the whole car would come to a screeching halt. I think I read that they did this on the middle of a highway at one stage and uh, whoever was the passenger shit the pants. 60 to 0 in two seconds. They had a game they called Twist and Hurl. They'd drink a little bottle of beer knock it back, and when they finished, you had to spin it and throw it at a stop sign. And if you got the stop sign, you were the winner. 
Some of that is fairly harmless if you compare it to Motley Crue or, or some of the other bands, shenanigans we've mentioned before, Guns N' Roses. But they do all share one thing in common, which might be slightly contentious, and it was at the time, and maybe there's an echo of that still today in the modern world that we live in, that Motley Crue, Nicky Six was wearing a t-shirt which had a swastika emblazoned on it from a punk <laughs> band of the early 80s. Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose, he wrote a song called One in a Million off the Lies album when he talks about immigrants and faggots, that they come to his country and they spread some fucking disease and Phil Anselmo in 1995 he was in concert in Montreal in Canada and then he started complaining about black rappers being racist on their albums so he then said well if white guys were singing the same thing they'd be vilified as racist and then everyone said, Philly, Billy, you're racist. <laughs> he didn't he declare white power at some stage. He said some of his friends were associated with white power. I think it was after Dimebag died and they, and they got together. It was kind of a tribute concert. And, and Phil played with a few of his celebrity pals. Mm. And at the end of it, he goes, his fist in the air and goes, white power. Back in 95. So it was it's after well the racist. far beyond. <laughs> Allegedly. He apologised for what he said on stage. He said he was drunk. However, in the fallout, there were a lot of other rockers who either supported him, like Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity, which they went on to form the band down. And he said, you know, he's right. He said he grew up in New Orleans. And he said, you know, the black people walking down the street would spit at him and hated him. And he said, if a black man was burning, dying on the ground, he wouldn't save him because he would expect that the black guy would do the same and not save Phil if he was lying on the ground on fire. Pepper agreed with that and said, yeah, it's just the way it is he's speaking the truth man Max Cavaliera the lead singer at Sepultura at the time he said nah he's a racist you can't say these things Phil needs to think about what he said and he has apologised but it's a bit of a difficult one and Dave Mustaine said (laughs) Dave sat on the fence Dave sat on the fence because he just smart sweating bullets So, yeah, was he a a racialist? We'll discuss it later, track by track. There's a couple of tracks that kind of allude to something. That's it. (laughs) Pantera opened for ACDC at the Free Monsters of Rock Festival in Moscow during Vulgar's recording sessions. That's right. That was a big thing for them. I think the band members are quoted as saying that gave them the confidence to go into the studio and record this monster of an album. Mm. Fucking Hostile was inspired by Nine Inch Nails distorted vocals. <laughs> vocals. Like Darryl, the vocals? I was a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails at the time. And why we're talking... Vulgar uh, display... Actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, yep. Adrian. Sorry, darling. Sorry, darling. No, I haven't had any drink. I want to play you something. It's two minutes. So we're just breaking into your facts a bit. So hang on a second. Sheath your facts for a moment. And let's follow up. <laughs> facts on. have to be long because the track by track isn't very long. Okay, that's fine then. So we can we can amble along. and It'll this just is, be another nightmarish 10-hour editing <laughs> session to bring this all down under two hours. Have a listen to this. And now, the sloppy bit. <laughs> this is where we get our most loving letter. Ginger in the pants now. Request for the most loving song. I'll bring it to you. Tonight's letter begins thus. Dear Friday Rock Show, I heard that your show is coming locally to Lucan. So please, can you read this letter out when you come to Lucan? As there will be a girl there, I want to let know what I really feel for her. <coughs> Nicola, you are the sun in my dark world. <laughs> The morning dew glistening on my stalk. Excuse <laughs> me? Sorry. Your hair reminds me of a warm, safe place where as a child I'd lie. <laughs> Without you, I am nothing. Excuse me? The sun rises and sets over your buttocks. I love you. I can't wait to get you to my gaff to shag your brains out. Please, please say you will. I've asked for a crazy fume, I've not... No, 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 Talking Polish there, By, yes. By Madonna to be played. Because I'm crazy for you. Yours, hopelessly devoted, Keith. Well, Keith, we've read this letter in the hope you will find your loved one. But we can't play your fucking song. So instead, here's... We're going to play some... Bang, no, 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 no. Bang, we're actually going to play some really Jack lovely Spass. music. <laughs> We're going to play some nice music for my Because yes. I know you're feeling yes. down at this precise moment. Yes. So we really want to Love. try our best yes. to get you out of your depression. depression. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my heart, it's uplifted. So, here you go, Kate. For love. One, two, three, four! Whoa, well, that chap had a flame problem, didn't he? Oh, that was a Pantera with 
Fucking Jesus! Fucking Jesus, man! Well, now it's time to get really disgusting again with yet another letter. <laughs> that Very was good. Yeah, it was that time you did work experience on that radio station in Ireland all those years ago. Said, it's where you started your career. I sounded a lot more comfortable on the microphone back then than I do now. Yeah, you could actually string a few sentences together. Vulgar Display Power was recorded at Pantigo Studio in Texas, owned by Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul's dad, who was a country artist and producer named Jerry Abbott. Ah. So they didn't come from nowhere. They got they the didn't. They up. got the leg up. I'm not bitter. What are you doing? <laughs> are you re- <laughs> rearranging your shelves? <laughs> I can't keep up. I can't come out today. I'm rearranging my shelves again. Facts. Phil Anselmo unconsciously stole a line from The Exorcist for Vulgar Display of Power's title. It's in a scene where a priest asks the possessed girl, Regan McNeil, to break her own straps and release her evil power. She says, Well then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly and do these straps. <laughs> if you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. I was about to do my own impression. Much too vulgar a display of power. Fuck you, Karras. Dimebag's signature drink, Black Tooth Grin, which is a crown royal with a splash of coke, was invented during the Vulgar Tour supporting Megadeth and inspired by Countdown to Extinction single, Sweating Bullets. Someday you too will know my pain and smile his black tooth grin. <laughs> is that you quoting The Exorcist again? <laughs> yeah, Dave Mustaine. <laughs> Swimming bullets! Sweaty bollocks! <laughs> Despite the 30 punches to the face rumours at $10 a pop, no models were actually harmed during the making of Vulgar Display of Power's cover art. No. Photographer Brad Juice dispelled this when he confirmed that the man, who was a hard model named Sean Cross, was never actually struck. Looked really cool <laughs> in comparison to their earlier album covers. In Rex Brown's autobiography, Official Truth 101 Present Proof, he said that Daryl had actually sent in a photocopy of him doing something similar and he wanted it to be on the cover and he was pissed off and they did a professional version. Not something that we <laughs> might have had photocopied badly five times in Mace. <laughs> yeah, and it was handy for us too. It was black and white. Just as good on the bootleg. That's what Brad Jew said they wanted it in colour actually and originally it was in colour with a red background. But he didn't like it. <laughs> At the age of 14, Phil Anselmo caused a fire in his parents' house where he put a sheet over a hat stand pretending it was a ghost or something and put a candle in front of it and sat it in a closet behind an open door. Mm. He was always a bit of a mad egg. I had a similar incident where when I was a kid, <laughs> I took it upon myself to experiment with a can of links and a cigarette lighter. Yeah. I said, will, will it really go on fire? So I sprayed it and I clicked the cigarette lighter and I went, <laughs> and it burnt me neck curtains. <laughs> Mother was very upset. I'm sure. You're nearly self-immolated. <laughs> Me and Phil, similar. Facts. I had a fucking neglectful childhood. Mama's great dad was aloof. They were both terribly young. I was born with mom's heart and dad's diseases. I had a stepfather. I resented a fucking split from my house when I was 15. I walked. Then I came back and left for good at 16. Respect. And within all that, I've got temper issues and trust issues. And they were worse when I was a young man. In a lot of relationships, I could not give all of myself. At the time, there could have been a dozen different girls. The song This Love could have been about because none of it was real to me. Love came from a different place, not from a relationship between two people because I never saw it as a kid, man. Adrian, I never saw it. And when I did, I just didn't believe it or I resented it. And it's not what I am anymore. Obviously, obviously, no, I'm fine. I've learned some lessons here and there. But that's how I felt. Yeah, and he also said that he was abused as a child by both men and women growing up. They were taking so turns with him. What are they like, rotisserie <laughs> him? I mean, past the baby. He had a rough childhood. Uh, yeah. We, we get that. And then he goes into it in, in some of the songs as well. Vulgar display of power was inspired by Metallica's Black Album, as oh, they believed yeah. Metallica's album was a bit of a letdown to fans, because they'd abandoned the trash metal sound, and they came out with this soft bag music, commercial <laughs> stuff. 
And Pantera was saying to themselves, oh my God, this is it. There's a hole in the market. Metallica have gone soft. We're going to go in there and make the hardest album ever. Got to blow some people's minds. Yeah, subsequently, Vinnie Paul said, of course, the Metallica's Black Album is fantastic and he loves it and it's fucking great, as he called it. But at the time, they were so full of piss, vinegar and youth, full of exuberance. And they went, yeah, we can do better than that. And thank God they did, really. It was the album you would have expected from Metallica. It's kind of, it would have been their, their lost album if they'd continued in that vein instead of the pop album that they brought out. But was like, That's probably why we all loved Vulgar Display of Power so much. Do you think before maybe, let's say, Fear Factory came along in 1995, Bulgar Display of Power was the last true great heavy metal album? Because then Nirvana's Nevermind just come out, I think, the previous year. And the grunge explosion with Pearl Jam and, of course, Soundgarden. That would depend on what your definition of heavy metal is. It seems to be a rather large umbrella for a lot of different music. Well, when we were youngsters at the time, we embraced Nirvana when they splashed onto the scene. I love Nevermind. Smells like teen spirit blew my mind the first time I heard it. Yeah. And I also loved Pearl Jam, one of my favourite bands. Mm. And the Black Album preceded all of this in 1990, so maybe Metallica were prescient. They knew what was coming. They knew that they'd exhausted all the possibilities. Anthrax so they, hadn't they realized that. The next trend. They kicked their lead singer out and they tried to get John Bush in to be more grungy and that was a waste of space. The lead singer of Armored Saint. They were a very good band. And then when John did, left, he created two shit bands. Do you think a band is a band and they should stick to their sound or should they move on to the next trend? Well, then we're going back to the definition of what is heavy metal. Inherently parochial. They kind of like the same thing regurgitated. Look at ACDC and the boogie rock. I don't know. You look at ACDC, Maiden, The Priest. They still essentially make the same music as they did in the early 80s now. In any of the cases of these bands either losing one of their leaders or the singer or the guitarist, if not through choking on their own vomit and dying, that they've lost them because of musical differences, that one of them has said, oh, this is the same old boring shit, we can't keep this going, I'm off, I'm going to do my own thing. And then later they come back for the cash because they have become legacy acts, a lot of these guys, and fair play to them because, you know, in their 50s and 60s, so you can't expect them. But yeah, these young lads like Pantera were at the time saying, we can be on that pedestal. We can kick Metallica off their perch. Yeah. You want to be the new Stones. You want to be the new... Coldplay, whoever it is. Rex Brown said somewhat patronizingly, he says that, you know, a lot of the bands out now are inspired by Pantera and they've all copied Pantera and, you know, they would still be garage bands if it wasn't for us. And then you could still say to Rex, haha, so would you have been if it wasn't for you looking at Metallica and saying, mm, they've gone soft yeah. bag. Yeah, there's, there's We're going to kind of fill that niche. Music as well, mm. which we probably mentioned it in the track by track. Oh, well, I would say this is probably the last really heavy album I ever listened to. That you ever listened to? But you had form with listening to Stock Aiken and Waterman in the late 80s, so... I do, and you say that to disparage me? No, you took <laughs> offence at that. I'm just I'm asking the question. But yeah, it would be the, the last heaviest album. And on your point, yeah, I, I would have listened to not as heavy rock albums and more pop music. And as you get older, you don't have the same anger in you. So the Pantera album isn't something you put on, on the car going to work. As Fear Factory, when they came along, and then System of a Down at the turn of the millennium, and afterwards Mastodon, also fantastic, Children of Bottom, Cradle of Filth. I think maybe Vulgar Display of Power was the last mainstream heavy album. Mm. Metal was quite fashionable at that time, late 80s, early 90s, that second wave of global heavy metal. Don't think I'd listen to an album similar today if it came out to Vulgar Display of Power. But would you listen to Amon Amarth? Yeah. Yeah, because you know know, you like threshing your ore (laughs) (laughs) to lands unknown. Yeah, that's the element of that that I like. And you like putting up the shield wall. Mm. Yeah. What about the lyrics then on Vulgar Display of Power? Because if we think about thrash <laughs> albums of the 80s, which were you know, Testament, Anthrax, Death Angel, DRI, Tankard. <laughs> the only Tankard I know is the one I drink from. <laughs> and that's exactly what they were, a German heavy metal drinking band. And of course, some bands maybe were trying to be quite philosophical or psychological or just like accept balls to the wall head down, start shunting. And Pantera, in the lyrics of Phil Anselmo, he was more about his inner psychology, about showing confidence and strength, a new level. A lot of it is about, leave me alone, don't disrespect me, I'm a man, I'm real. And do you think he's quite insecure? 
Yeah, yeah. I looked at a lot of kind of modern reviews looking back at the album and they think it's a little bit outdated and he's full of posturing, masochistic lyrics. Yeah, we'll come to this track by track, of course, when we go through it. At the time, I don't think we even really listened to the lyrics. We were attracted to the sound, a rattling double bass Vinnie Paul and the buzzsaw guitars of Daryl and this petulant baldy fiend. No backing, just him roaring into the microphone. It appeals to disaffected teenagers living in their parents' basements and and this man feels my pain. Bang your head around to it. Yeah, it's cool. This is how Pantera have then been marketed because a lot of their videos is just about the band moshing, zoom close-ups of the band. There's nothing esoteric. There's no video art and direction and trying to show some angsty teenagers suffering that were the de rigueur at the time for rock videos on MTV. However, saying that, when Vulgar Display of Power was remastered and re-released, it had an extra track called Piss that was put on it. And if you look at Piss, go to YouTube and look at the video and you'll see exactly this. The intro is a kid saying, well, I'm just a kid who loves Pantera. I'm going to live and die in this town, so fuck it. And then it's just a video of all young and old people moshing around. Mm Mm-hmm. It and was just that says everything to me about, about them. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we stop now then? Shall I we just, crack just... open your Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album or some Morrissey and then explore the angst of the artist? Well, it's funny enough, I've been listening to a bit of Nick Cave lately, introduced to him by uh, Peaky Blinders. Really good. Oh, well, yeah. I was originally introduced to him, obviously, by Kylie on uh, <laughs> The Murder Ballad. Yes. Mustache! Anyway, in the annals of heavy metal, Vulgar Display of Power is, as it seems from the reviews and the research we've done, it's a Marmite album. People either laud it and love it and give it 100%, and then other people say it's 10%, a lumbering three-chromatic chord breakdown after breakdown, interrupted by occasional bursts of lowest common denominator thrash metal or an all-too-logical clean guitar line in a failed and transparent attempt to (laughs) introduce dynamic. I approached this album now. I was kind of taking the piss over a little bit, but if you don't take it too seriously, it's still a great album. There's still plenty of hooky tunes and it's it's really heavy and you can jump up and down to it. And when you take it from that kind of baseline, it's a great album. It is. Um, Scott Ian of Anthrax, he said, still today, at least six of the songs on this album are relevant now. They're classics. Something like the riff in Walk is synonymous with Stairway to Heaven, Smoke on the Water, He's gone mad now, I think. (laughs) That's just crazy talk. Anyway, I'm going to bash through the facts. Most of the songs for Vulgar Display of Power were composed in the studio by producer Terry Date. The exceptions were A New Level, Regular People and No Good Attack the Radical. As you mentioned earlier, Rex Brown has said that they would just take out all the drum parts and listen to every single tone and mute a guitar part to make sure the guitars and bass were sitting right on top of one another. That's why sometimes you don't hear the bass, he says. It's just so meshed in with the guitar that it sounds like one giant tone. And that gives it that that kind of sound that you like. (laughs) That I like? (laughs) Yeah. And I like. That gives us the kind of sound that, that we'd like. Pantera briefly feuded with Kerrang! magazine after the powerful heavy metal weekly printed an unflattering cartoon of drummer Vinnie Paul subtitled, You Fat Bastard! <laughs> <laughs> That's why they fell out. Mm-hmm. When Pantera finished recording the album, they flew to New York to master the record at Master Disc. The band sequenced the songs and the studio placed them in order on a master tape. Then they sat down and listened to what they'd created. Vinnie Paul recalls, Dan was sitting there on the couch. He was crying all the way through it. And I went, dude, dude, are you all right? And he said, it's perfect. It's exactly what I always wanted and I always dreamed of. It meant so much to him that he became emotional. I would have been the same. You're kind of putting all your... your (laughs) (laughs) You have no emotions. That's fight and talk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you sitting in the studio listening to the Fred Rock show get emotional you're not capable of that you have a swinging brick in there <laughs> I've, I've, I'm shocked and bemused <laughs> oh, you got to come to me and say hey Gene hey Gene that's the best thing we ever recorded oh, it's so funny <laughs> I do think that to myself sometimes I should phone him and tell him this <laughs> but you uh, might think it a bit odd I'd be thinking Jesus uh, really means it a lot to him he's become emotional Dude! So you've emptied your facts, the whole load? I've emptied my whole fact bag all over you. 
So now I want you to come with me down the creaky wooden stairs into my musty, dank cellar. Flick the switch, dodge the bats, mind the noose, and wipe off those mouse droppings, for inside this filing cabinet holds a treasure trove, a musty, tactile ode to rock and heavy metal of the 1980s and 1990s. Kerrang! Kerrang! was the United Kingdom's foremost metal magazine in that bygone era of Jabba the Hutt, Jerry Adams, and Timmy Mallet. Pantera were first splayed across its pages in issue 186 in a May 1988 interview with Dave Reynolds, promoting their fourth album, Power Metal. No, it's not Thor's wife, Gern's Dave, but a Texan four-piece that everyone's ignored. Until now, lead singer Phil Anselmo says, We're not a thrash band, we're a power metal band. A guitar arsenal, adds drummer Vinnie Paul. I don't know how he sounded, but <laughs> maybe he sounded like that. Guitarist, I don't think I've heard any of them talking. Guitarist brother Diamond Darrell says, This is what we're going to be doing for the... <laughs> He's into Wurzels now, is he? <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. See, that's what he looks like. This is what we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives. Dave signs off by saying Pantera are for real. They're heavy, hot, talented and original. Two weeks later, in Kerrang! issue 188, Power Metal is reviewed on page 16. Derek Oliver slaps a 4K sticker on the front telling us it crunches around the same territory as Sabotage, Metallica and Queensryche. Hmm. Cracking tunes, relentless fury and anger pounding out the riffs. This is Power Metal at its hottest and most destructive. <laughs> yes. A live review from Dallas, Texas arrives in issue 198 in July 1988 under the moniker Anselmo's Fire. Susan Ayala says that a loyal following of 1,400 fans turned up and nobody left the Arcadia Theatre with any remorse, having witnessed a two-hour exercise in power metal mayhem. Highlights of the night for Susan were the dark prophetic we'll meet again that she said cut her to the bone, and the equally riveting hard ride that also cut her bone. <laughs> Starting with a Dokken-esque intro before exploding into a chugging straight-ahead rocker. Dokken, Adrian. Dokken. Dokken hell. Now we have to measure everything in the future. How Dokken-esque it could be. No more were heard nor seen of the Texan tonsil tortures until two years to the day, nearly, on July 28th, 1990, when the pants are back on. Back in Kerrang, sneaking into issue 300 on page 27 with their fifth album, Cowboys from Hell, reviewed by Don Kay. Another 4K accolade is spaffed on the band, with Kay astonished that Pantera are no longer a joke of the metal underground, but have unleashed a spitting fireball of a record, a venom made more potent by Terry Date production. Razor-sharp guitars, gravelly vocals, savage drumming, and uh, Rex on bass. Deliver a unique and powerful thrash treat! Congrats to Pantera, ends Kay, for fooling us all these years. Eleven issues later, Don Kay is banging his noggin live to Pantera in LA, losing his breath and his neck twitching uncontrollably. Phil Anselmo is constantly airborne and never missing a cue. They deliver a set of primal concrete sludge that damn near ranks up with Sepultura and Slayer. February 1991 heralds issue 327 and here's Brian Brandes Brinkerhoff. You remember him as a contributor to Kerrang! Brian Brandes Brinkerhoff? No. No? Well, he was at a Pantera gig in Long Beach, California. 100% energy, 0% bullshit. A Pantera show is something that you feel, experience, live and participate in. And not just here. The tightest band around and the best of a new breed. Hail a fucking rock band, says Brian, signing off. In 1991, you get a poster of the lads in March's issue, 330. And two weeks later, there's a two-page interview by Don Kay with the now mohawked vocalist Phil Anselmo. Kay is in awe of the strong man before him. He's got a voice that breathes fire and a stage persona to match, the band being perhaps the most ferocious tornado of sight and sound that he's witnessed in 1990. Phil is best mates with Rob Halford, citing him as one of his biggest influences and an incredibly down-to-earth man. And nice. Beautiful. However, Phil has less time for the record company people, telling him what he thinks he wants to hear. Ass-licking. That's something Phil will never do. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Can't prove it. Can't disprove it. And to end, leaves Don K sated with the soundbite that Pantera is a groove metal. <laughs> sated. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
Pantera is a groove metal band, a hell of a metal crunch, and for what they do, they're the heaviest band in the world. That's brilliant, That's just man. They're all fat bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the band Mountain. <laughs> well, there was another band of fat guys, wasn't there? Yeah. Mammoth. Mammoth. Their main song was called Fat Man. There's a <laughs> fat man in me! <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember it now. <laughs> Morat concurs in issue 333 in March 1991 watching Pantera slay the world live at the Marquee in Charing Cross, London and for free too. He loves Mohawk maniac Phil Anselmo Anselmo is in serious danger of taking the frontman of the decade award says Morat. Spontaneous, humorous, energetic and utterly insane he nods in approval at the craziest stage dives and raps with the audience like he's Mike Muir's kid brother. Clown Prince Anselmo gratefully accepts a joint from the writhing mass at the front. Roll another one. He smiles as they crash into another magnificent cacophony. And if you were reading this and not knowing Pantera, you'd really want to go and see them. Oh, well worth it. 11 months waft by in a haze of other bands' triumphs and tragedies. And before you know it, it's 1992. It's issue 378. And we're told to prepare our ears as Pantera will release their sixth album overall, but third one led by Phil Anselmo. But the second one through East West Records on February 25th. How very vulgar is the title of the article. A vulgar display of power is the title of the album. Album. And lo, from atop page 18 of Kerrang! issue number 380 on February 22nd, 1992, come the album's review by usual pants lurker Don K. And yet another 4K armory bestowed upon Groove Metal's mighty men. Powerage, states the heading, for a vulgar display of power is a loud, abrasive, ugly, hateful, vicious, rebellious kick in the balls and a fist to the face. A spitting, sparkling whirlwind of crackling energy to hostile intent. If these lads were cowboys from hell in 1990 then surely they've lassoed Satan himself, bottled him up and drunk him down on a vulgar display wow. of power Philip is the star of this album and possibly the metal frontman of the decade. Never has one vocalist captured such rage and aggression in one performance. The man is a monster imbued with more power than a thousand Glenn Bentons or Dave Vincents. Bonus points Adrian if you can tell me who these lead singers are of what bands Pass Glenn Benton, Deicide. Dave Vincent, Morbid Angel. Who are you listening to in 1992? Not Roachford, no. Oh, yeah. Ugly Kid Joe had a, had a great tune that year. The Lep were back with Let's Get Rocked. Pet Shop Boys, Behaviour came out that year. Prodigy, Guns N' Roses. You were into mainstream rock still at the time. Yes. Yeah. But you definitely wouldn't have been interested into any of the other subgenres like I wouldn't thrash say it was a great or, year, 1992. Yeah, I didn't get into kind of Stone Temple Pilots or, or, or any of that. So Pearl Jam didn't affect you? Well, I did. I, li- I like Pearl Jam. Well, I didn't want to say that because it would have sounded like a, a poser if it said that. Ah, dear. Back to Kerrang! Six issues later, we catch up live with Pantera in concert with Skid Row at Irvine Meadows, California. Reviewer Jim Filiold left red and sore as the band shred him within an inch of his life, rendering him in a speechless state of awe. Later in the year of 1992, in October, through issues 412, 413 and 418, we hear of Pantera's support gig propping up an ailing, drooling Megadeth on their European tour. We saw them live on this tour, actually, Adrian, in Dublin on the 25th of September. Do you remember that? I do indeed. I remember it like yesterday when they burst on stage with Domination, following up with This Love and going to Cowboys from Hell. It's good that you're able to look at that setlist.com website. (laughs) Well, yes, I do remember. It was one of the few times that I went to a gig. I kind of felt intimidated because the crowd was really wild and there was sweat pouring from the walls. A really violent mosh pit up the front. I'm sure what age were we back then? Like we were eating up from the country, yeah. up on the bus in the dark, and you come into this, and it's just it's an organised riot. That's <laughs> so loud. When I think back at it, maybe I should have loosened the inhibitions and just got in and went mad up at the front. And we actually met the Pantera boys in the Virgin Megastore signing earlier in the day. I remember them all sitting at a little desk doing their signing thing. I hadn't got an album, so I got them to sign the the concert ticket, and they had little pictures which I signed for us. 18-year-olds met 24- and 28-year-old nascent metal gods that day. Perhaps, looking back at it, we should have relaxed and, and jumped in. I don't know, did you get into the crowd? 
I remember the next year in the SFX with Pantera mm. and Grunt Truck supporting them that we all went a bit mental, slam diving up at the top. That was intense. I don't remember the one so much in the Point Depot with Megadeth, but and I do have photos of it, so I managed to smuggle in a little camera in my shoe. <laughs> so I took some shots, and it was just to the side, the right side of the stage, but we were at the front. Great shots of Daryl leaning into the microphone, screaming, respect, walk. When I look back over my diaries at that time, Pantera is mentioned about 12 times. And over the years, I thought that Diamond Daryl handed me his plectrum, which had little groove marks in it for grip during the concert. Okay, so, so how did you come into the possession of and this plectrum? I, I drilled a hole in it and I wore it as a necklace for many, many years. So reading back at the diaries, I discovered that my ex-girlfriend at the time found it on the laneway in Lucan, West Dublin. And she handed it to me when I visited that subsequent Saturday. That's an even better story. What are the chances of the real plectrum? And she of, gives it to you. And she gives it to you. me. Then you broke it off with her. And you got the plectrum and everything. So on mature recollection, remember Martin? You built up a fantasy in your, your head where you had met Dimebag and went for a few Guinnesses. <laughs> <laughs> Mustache! Track by track! All of the tracks are credited to Phil Anselmo, Diamond Darrell, Rex Brown and Vinnie Paul. And track one is Mouth for War. This one opens with a heavy chugging riff assaulting your eardrums. The listeners thrown straight into a high energy aggression. It sounds like it's closing time. Phil's had a few and is leaving the pub with revenge on his mind. It looks like the lads have been slagging him off behind his back. <laughs> now he's standing there with his shaven head and Musty's torso spitting. Speak the truth to me. No one can piss on this determination. That's how I imagine it. That's a great start to the album as well. Compressed, chugging, kicking, violent surge of energy. Hardcore vocals from Phil giving you a real sense of aggression. And Dimebag's guitar is just complimenting it. An interesting fact about this song is that one of the lads at ID Software ripped off the verse riff in MIDI form and included it on one of the levels of their legendary first-person shooter, Doom. Didn't know that. Yeah. Phil himself has said that Mouth for War is about channeling your hate into something productive. Elsewhere, he also mentions that the song might have been about middleweight champion of the time, James Tony. It was used as the theme song for MTV's Headbangers Ball and composed in the key of G major. This song became the first to ever chart for the band. In October 1992, it reached number 73 on the UK singles chart. But th this isn't an epic album opener. It's a straight fist to the jaw, just like the cover, just their intent, basic primal concrete sludge. I was just listening to it earlier in preparation for the show, and I was pogoing around the kitchen. Oh yeah. Shaking the head. Oh yeah. Dun -dun 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 -dun. Speak the truth about me, determined revenge. So I'm coming in my tractor again. He's back to the Warzels. <laughs> track it, Adrian, track it. Track two is a new level. Oh. A spidery slide on the strings introduces this track, launching into a swinging, lumbering riff. Got shit on, got pissed on, spit on, stepped on. Phil growls. Maybe his confrontation outside of the pub didn't go to plan. Yeah. <laughs> and he came off slightly the worse for wear. Pointed at by lesser men. Phil is complaining about the posers, shouting in his best I'm a tough guy voice. I imagine he beat his chest like a gorilla in the recording booth. I used to sing the chorus to this in my head when I got a promotion at work. Go in, start giving out to people. Yeah. Late from break. I won't. I won't. Now there's a wah-wah solo, followed by a shredding solo, another one of Dimebag's best. There was lots of voices in my head at the end of the solo. There's I actually Phil. felt like I was in Phil's baldy dome. Yeah, Phil's there in your left ear, Phil's in your right ear. Yeah. No, what it sounds like to be in his brain. <laughs> you no, walk on, boy. So I, I see a lot of reviews of this where they describe it as groove metal. It is groovy. As mentioned earlier, some of the tracks had been demoed before producer Terry Date started work on the album, and this was one of them. Phil Anselmo described it as the ultimate chip-on-your-shoulder type song. And did you know Madonna performed a riff from a new level on her Sticky and Sweet tour during a medley version of Hung Up? Hmm. This one is composed in the key of A minor. A new level was written to be performed live. We definitely wanted to make a statement musically that would coincide with this live show that we had. The energy that we were putting out there. No fucking surrender. <laughs> track by track! Track three, Walk. 
It's a nice intro on this one for Paul going up and down too. Pantera channeling their inner Aretha and are looking for some respect. Mm-hmm. R-E-S-P-E-C-T W-H-I-T-E P-R-I-D <laughs> There is a menacing outro on this one. I feel even though the vocals have stopped, the aggression is still following me. Still there. Follow me home. Make sure I walk all the way home. Yeah, we following you. Go home, boy. What a tough guy he is. Yeah, yeah. One kick to the balls and he'd be out of it. He'd be like the Bee Gees. My balls aren't aching because Paul is slapping down. Stay alive. Walk. Somebody did say that it's synonymous now with Stairway to Heaven and Smoke on the Water and maybe Smells Like Teen Spirit or, you know, these iconic riffs. As soon as you hear the first note, dun, mm. you'd know it. Dun, 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 dun. Very simple. Now, apparently, the riff for Walk originated at a sound check during the tour for Cowboys from Hell when Dimebag Daryl played it to the rest of the band and they loved it. Phil said that the message of the song was take your fucking attitude and take a fucking walk with that. This was aimed at friends that treated the band differently when they arrived home from the Cowboys from Hell tour. The album's fourth and final single, it gave Pantera their first top 40 UK hit when it peaked at number 35 in early 1993. So you've been tuned into Sparky Marky Goodyear and you wouldn't have to wait too long before you heard Walk? I speaking of Mark Goodyear. So I saw Top of the Pops recently, a vintage episode with Mark Goodyear, his first Top of the Pops appearance with Peter Powell holding his hand. And Mark was in a double-breasted suit, a grey double-breasted suit, and it was like oversized five times that David Byrne would be proud of. And he was hysterical, Mark Goodyear. He was so happy to be on the show presenting. He was like apoplectic, trying to smile, but it looked like he was having a shit. (laughs) Track it, Adrian, track it. Track four on vulgar display of power, which is effing hostile. Are you serious? War starring hostile. <laughs> one, two, three, four. This one's straight into your face with aggression. It is, in fact, as hostile as its title proclaims. It ends in a squeal of feedback. This is trash metal with all the heavy riffs, aggression, and shouting with attitude that a man could ever want. Two minutes, 49 seconds of moshing, spitting, hawking, crapping yourself. <laughs> There's a lovely drum fill from Vinny. A vicious solo from Dine. And they have a go at everyone. It has a go at priests and the police. Bob Geldof will be proud of them. To see, to bleed, cannot be taught. It's just the, this is the best song of the album. Short, under three minutes. That's it. Moving on then to track five, This Love. There's a hard-hitting, screamed chorus over a guitar riff, and the song soon becomes heavier after the slow beginning. And then it slows down again, and it goes back into a melancholy dimebag guitar solo. You can't say that Pantera ever wrote ballads, but this is their ballad. You know, you keep this love, fist, scar, break. You keep this love. It's, it's what you'd want in the local school disco when they have those three songs at the, the slow part when you go over to the ladies and you try to get one on the dance floor. <laughs> this is what you'd want to come in after to pow. And you're just about to go in with the tongue. Like, <laughs> Punch her in the stomach, smack her in the face, <laughs> drag her off by the hair. Here's, here's my take on Pantera. Phil was at home one night, right? With his bouffant hair, thick mm. but hairspray and makeup, mm. Mm. watching MTV. Yeah. And you know what? He sees Henry Rowland's Liar video. Yeah. It's got the acoustic part like this. Yeah. And then it goes into the angry part. And then it goes slow again. Yeah. And then it goes angry. And Henry's in the video as figures of authority, the superhero, the policeman. And then he turns into devil. Phil is saying, this is what Pantera should be. He runs straight into the bathroom and he gives himself a buzz cut. And a tattoo across his stomach. And the rest is history. Now, reportedly, this love could have been about a dozen different women. But mostly its concepts are rooted in Anselmo's neglected childhood, as mentioned earlier. Mm. Track six. Rise. On this up-tempo trasher, Pantera invites us to rise. Rise. Do you know what? I'd love to have the chorus as my alarm sound. I'm not sure you'd appreciate it as you're in your, you know, third cycle of your dream in the slumber, chuffing away there, buried into the pillow. The next minute this every queen in every color make a birdie time to work. What's wrong with your mind? Why is your life so useless? I'm taking no shit today. Driving out of your... <laughs> Foot down in the Ford Focus. Burning rubber. Those fuckers won't take advantage of me at work today. You fucking hear me? Takes out the gatepost on the way into the compound. <laughs> As 
Suicidal Tendencies Lights Camera Action from 1990 and that was a good precursor to this album The Style and again they toured together and Phil as was said earlier in Kerrang you know must have taken a few cues from Mike Muir who was the lead singer of Suicidal Tendencies well done Burn. I'm learning as you well learning. as teaching. this is a learning opportunity for you Glenn Benton was the lead singer of Deicide <laughs> that's impressive track 7 no good attack the radical just makes me think of Prodigy for some reason. It makes me think of the new Radicals. You get what you get. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to hear like no good start the dance. Da down down da down down da down da down down. Wow 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 wow. No good for me. I don't need nobody. So there's a weird rapping intro vocal from Phil on this, followed by some <laughs> shouting, then singing on the chorus. Now I'll be honest with you, Phil Anselmo is only my second favorite Baldy Phil in music. Phil Collins is my favourite. Well, that's because you are now of a certain age that appreciates Phil. Yeah. Okay, so let's rub the nub of this topic. (laughs) The lyrics of this song, Adrian. I've seen your side. You run and hide for the mere fact that you feel inferior. Be superior and know your interior. Race, pride, prejudice, black man, white man, no stand. Live in the past, we make it last. A hated mass, no solution, mind pollution for revolution. What's it all about? He's dealing with racism, yeah. Yeah. Ignorant past burn fires. I think Mm. that's the Ku Klux Klan in the States is a problem with race. Yeah, that's very obvious. Mm. You blame oppression and play the role of criminals to rape and burn show progress is minimal. (laughs) I'm having a look at this now. With different eyes, I have to say. In light of what subsequently was said in the media and reported and what we talked about (laughs) earlier, then it gives you a slight different colouring of how you might interpret these lyrics. Now, lyrics are wildly interpretable in any which way form. It's like Metallica. Very little is said in their lyrics. There are a few stated words, maybe a couplet here and there, but nothing fully descriptive. It's not Nick Cave, is it? No, he's not reading you an audio book to music. He's not being literal. I'm just looking at one of the lyrics that you just mentioned. You run and hide for the mere fact that you're inferior. Be superior. So that to me is, is a positive thing. To me, he's telling them to stop running and hiding because they feel inferior and to act superior. But who? Who should be doing that? I think he's saying that to the black man. So he's saying to the black man, you should be superior. Like stand up, take the racism and just get on with it. Mm. Morgan Freeman was asked a question recently and he was asked by a white journalist and again if we have to speak in these terms white and black here comes the point and his answer was listen how do we stop racism stop talking about it stop talking about me as a black man and stop talking about you as a white man and when we use these phrases white and black this is where we're then always going to be separating two types of humans just because we tag them left and right black and white not the same even if we say oh we must all come together blacks and whites michael jackson tried to say that he became both i suppose jacko was a prophet so in kerrang by the way the fallout of his racist rant back in 1995 there was an article uh, written by chris watts who eviscerates phil for his quotes calling him a stupid idiot a moron of course racist skin the lead singer of skunk and nancy was asked do you think that phil is racist and she said yeah and phil tried to say well black rights what about white rights so he's maybe saying we should be equally superior and when you read these lyrics it's possible that you can interpret that as quite racist or is he trying to be equitable he's trying to say both of us can be racist towards each other it's not going to help but we should be honest or that's, we should try to rem- reading yeah or we should just remove all of this nonsense because it's built on nonsense and it doesn't have any future and we should all recognize each other no matter what not creed or color or ideology or gender or whatever. Black man, white man, no stand. Stop it. But it can be misconstrued or it can be interpreted according to yeah. your own agenda. You can read what you want into that. Yeah. I read it kind of as, as a positive thing. To stop running and hiding, to be the person you are. Don't let people make you feel inferior and because uh, of history. And I can imagine Phil knew exactly what he was saying and he what he wanted to say was try to be fair and balanced and yeah. let's look at both sides equally and with a harsh light. Side. Don't play the victim. If black rappers are in their lyrics saying kill the white man, then what about in white lyrics saying kill the black man? And holding up that argument is very dangerous. It is. And it's I think no he got good. away with it for the most part until he started. As Chris Watts said in the Kerrang! article about this at the time, yeah, yeah, if you just think Phil was drunk one night and he sounded off and he's apologised, think again, pal. Very condescending by Chris Watts. I thought one of the less interesting tracks on the album... Proved to be. 
whole different perspective on it there. Yeah. And that's what you're here for, the content on Moshtalgia. Moshtalgia. Do you think, by the way, these first six songs now that we've just talked about, that that's the end of the good stuff? Yes, uh, except uh, I do like Hollow, the last track. Mm. Track it, Adrian, track it! Track eight, Live in a Hole, which is a mid-tempo song written in the studio with little demoing and pre-production. And it opens with a screaming guitar from Dimebag and also the use of a voice box. Richie? Yeah, he's doing a Richie on it. He's doing a Peter Frampton on it. I don't remember. I think everything that happened during my time never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> I <think that laughs> like all kids today. No one else ever had anything. We have it all. Pantera bassist Rex Brown calls the song a sledgehammer jam, which came to the band very quickly and very naturally, like most of the songs and this one is about the struggles of individuals with overwhelming social anxiety which again is quite prescient if you'd throw a stone at a group of kids today you'd be hard put not to smash the face off one who has social anxiety exactly everybody wants <laughs> well that could sounds be, quite uh, aggressive the of controversy here but i think everybody wants to be labeled these days they can be used as an excuse I'm like Phil, I just want to stay in the middle and show both points. I can't even remember this song now. I'm just looking at the lyrics. How did this... He sings the chorus in a kind of scary, sinister voice. Uh. My fear grips the will of stone. Ah, yeah. I grip fears, I'll die alone. The, the fact that you, you don't remember much of it says a little bit about the song. It's kind of one of the weaker songs on Vulgar Display of Power. Yeah, but I can't even remember it now as we're talking about it. I can't remember. Only that as you're listening to this, you can hear the song in the background. But I can't even hear it. So we'll quickly move on to track nine then. Regular people, in brackets, conceit. Most regular people would say, it's hard. It sure as hell is. It's like Steve I and Dave Lee Roth. Bradford. What? Well, let me roll up to the sidewalk and take a look here. Wow. Wow. She's beautiful. Yankee Rose. Yeah, Yankee Rose. So it's like scatting in the original sense. Most regular people would say, it's hard, just follows the riff. My favourite lyric is, you can't see because your head's up your ass. <laughs> and just in cast, you think you're bad, I crush your rush, I rule you fool. And any streetwise son of a bitch knows, don't fuck with this. Yeah, so a lot of macho posturing, again from Phil, which would probably have impressed all the 15 year olds, dreaming of squaring up to the school bully and telling them what for. I'm a movable stone in your wound of weak, I speak. Alright Phil, want a cigarette? <laughs> Twack. Track 10 is By Demons Be Driven. This is thrash metal moshing for me at the start. Beckon the call. Beckon the call. He's like an evil call centre supervisor opening the telephone lines to the public. By Demons Be Driven, it comes back with all the imagery that you can imagine that's good for Pantera. That they're cowboys yeah. from hell. Demons be driven, boys. I like it. I like the sound. Dun, dun, dun. It's just heavy, sludgy. It could be described as colour by numbers metal. Very basic. Beckon to call, repeated mechanically. Decent album track, proper metal. Yeah, one for the fans. And then we get to the closing track, Hollow. Another lovely ballad. The lyrics on this one are about a friend who has slipped into a comatose state. Phil has been reported as saying that it's not about a specific person, but a series of losses he's suffered. At the start of the song, he sounds more vulnerable than at any other stage on the album. I'd kill for you. I believe him. Dimebag is playing a big harmonized riff with an electric guitar and uh, there's a chorus effect in the background. This reflection on friendship and loss is kind of similar to Cemetery Gates. Again, it's one of those songs that starts slowly and it builds up, climaxing in the heavier, shoutier part near the end. And there's a nice little part at the end where the guitar kind of slowly fades away into darkness. You can just imagine the song going off into the space, into the ether. But <laughs> it here on my recent listing that I'd never heard before. There's a little bit on it where he goes, ah, oh, a wimpy little oh, pain. Yeah. I probably tried not to. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like there's, there's Phil like literally over my shoulder, breathing into my ear with a little strained. <laughs> not a good idea. And you, you feel like he would have been naked and vulnerable when he did this? Yeah. <laughs> Standing behind you, <laughs> cuddling you. Hands on both shoulders. Ah, feel my pain. I do feel. I'd rather not, though. Uh, this was a third single off Vulgar Display, but it never made the charts. Pantera had saved one of the better songs on the album until last. Yeah, it does stand the test of time. 
if it were a choice between Cemetery Gates and Hollow, which one would you prefer to play to your audience? I think this one... I'd go for Cemetery Gates. Yeah, I think this one was much like Jane's Addiction, where Jane says that they would not play it live. It was just recorded. It was a very emotional, private song about certain instances that happen in their lives. So yeah, it's, it's not one for the masses to play. Because they started the album with the literal fist to the face and a crack to the balls, slapping you around the place, telling you you're weak and then you should be strong, while punching you repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> like school teachers <laughs> when we were younger should be stronger slap punch and then ending with this contemplative yeah. emotional heart rendering you feeling emotionally sated as Don K was <laughs> yeah smoking you the cigarette you off your aggression all the way through now you're just tired and spent and you just then the tears flow it starts to well up inside a man that he doesn't ever want to show his emotion and cry and then you yeah. just see the, the shuddering and the judder and the shoulders start to vibrate and then you just <laughs> He's walked outside the pub at closing time. He's hit everybody. He's pulled people's heads off. They're all, all their corpses are lying there decapitated. He's gone back to his he, mother's house. He's gone upstairs to his little bedroom. There's yeah. a big keep out sign on the front of it. And he's got under the Secret Wars duvet. Started to cry. Tired from the exertions. And, and then it all flows, man. Yeah. It all flows. Yeah. He realises the futility and pointlessness of life. And, you know, just yeah. let it go. But you wake up angry again tomorrow morning once that alarm goes off. Exactly, that rise. You have to rise and get get (laughs) in the car and reef out the gearbox and murder the road. And then you have to go and beckon the call. Beckon the call. Here comes all those moany customers as we open the phone lines. (laughs) Well, I can't log in. Me password. Moshtalgia. This is Moshtalgia. Albums that we love albums that were very important to us when we were growing up to sum it up vulgar display of power is just heavy that's all that's just one word that's all you need heavy yeah it's the tightness of the riffing the tight drum and bass sound and those uh, powerful vocals from phil that, that make it they really do. Yeah, the production is fantastic. They meticulously work through it, as we documented. And there's a nice groove of the album. It's bluesy, it's groovy, it's heavy as hell. It's quite introspective in some of the lyrics, or as Phil would want you to believe. It it works, yeah. There's, again, six, seven of these songs. You can still enjoy them today. I've enjoyed listening to the album a few times over the week. And highly recommended. Reach back inside your angsty teenager. Go yeah, on. Yeah, that was it as well. When I, was, when I was listening to it, you're kind of rediscovering your angsty teenager. Let yourself kind of feel that anger that, you know, you try to push down in, in older years because you need to be mature. <laughs> yeah, and then your wife comes in and says, what are you doing? Fuck off! <laughs> Make me a sandwich! And you smash the Liverpool mug off her forehead. <laughs> leave her in a pool of blood. <laughs> so that's it. Vulgar display of power. <laughs> One of the best albums of 1992. Mosh so, as we have mentioned before, during our teenage years, BBC broadcast a regular rock show on a Friday night, which was, amazingly, called the Friday Rock Show. National Radio 1. My name is Tommy Vance, and welcome to the Friday Rock Show from BBC Radio 1. Tommy Vance, the Friday Rock Show. Rock in the UK, So what I want you to do now is to fall backwards and let the halcyon glow of the analogue oscilloscope wrap around you to the dim, dark, distant days of the mid-1980s and to BBC Radio 1's Friday Rock Show. Presenter Richard Anthony Crispian Francis Prue Hope Weston. Just Tommy Vance to us rock fans. Lit up another Rothmans, shanked the DT100s on his head and let producer Tony Wilson molest the faders in the studio room. It's 1986 and the United Kingdom and us spotty, cum-crusted teenagers got first blast of Pantera on these islands. It's the 26th of September and I am the night! And that is current Texas Boogie. That's where they come from. They're called Pantera. The album came out back in 1985. They got three albums out. It's a very good album. Still only available on import. I've, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I say that. I am the night. It's on uh, an American record label, which is Metal Magic Records. And uh, you heard the title track. Mm. Now, kitty! Mm, tender angels of mercy, how they run from my sight. Eclipsed into darkness, searching only for the light! This wasn't the Pantera that we would go on to worry about later. No, this was a young split spandex hairspray glam rock Pantera from Raper Avenue, Arlington, Texas. Fronted not by big, bad, bald, bass-throated Anselmo, but by little Terence Lee. Had the pants not gone on to a far beyond driven success story, we'd have never walked back to respect. 
respect their formative years here. But fair play to Tommy Vance, he played them. But mistakenly saying that second singer David Peacock sang on this album. Sorry for you, Tom, but it was still Tell at the Elm. Peacock came in for a short period in 1986, at that time of this Tommy transmission, on the 19th of December, 1986. That's quite an old album now, came out back in 1985. Pantera, the name of the band, they're out of Texas. Though, of course, that album features the old singer, not the new singer. He's on uh, subsequent albums. His name is David Peacock. He's the new singer. The old guy was T. Lee. I Am The Night, the uh, album's called, on Metal Magic. T. Lee. That was an import. Daughters of the Queen was the track. Pantera, or Pantera, as Tommy titled them, trundled into 1987 with a new sputum sprayer, the 19-year-old Phil Anselmo. Yet to be big, bald, drugged up and bigoted, this was a shiny, happy, silly, billy filly with bullet belt, bouffant hair and a puffed-up pout. 1987 was the year glam rock morphed into MTV-friendly pop rock with Bon Jovi, as Tommy would also say, Whitesnake, Europe and Poison, all topping charts and genuflecting their groins at the screen. Oh, we loved that, didn't we, Adrian? Also, 1987 exhumed a thorny rash of thrash albums by Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax and Megadeth, influencing Pantera and their new singer. 18 months later on, from the last Pantera play on the Friday Rock Show, came this on the 29th of April 1988. The band were back, full of hawks, spits, gnarly snarls and falsetto wails. This was the birth of Pantera power metal. There's a new album out in the States by Pantera. This is a track from it. Over and out. Part of that Pantera from their new one as well. Tell me this, did you ever listen to the first three Pantera albums? I have. Takes a bit of doing. So shall I? Let you be the judge. I won't be listening. <laughs> Just to say that the title of the album was indeed Power Metal. Vance was eager to finish the show and jog down wheezing for the last orders in the marquee on Wardour Street. Literally so, as the venue was moving location soon to Charing Cross. Run! Tommy, run! Producer Tony Wilson didn't like Tommy skiving off work so soon, so punished him with a new show from October 1988 on Saturday nights from midnight to 2am called Night Rocking. Tommy got his 10-pack in a huff and didn't want to play Pantera anymore, at least not from Big Philip, who by this time had his hair receding all the way back to the top of his neck. So back to 1985 again on the 7th of January 1989. First track at midnight on Night Rocking, I Am The Night. Before that you heard a band called Pantera, who might I don't think I've ever had a release in this country, but their records are always in the import shops. You heard the title track of an album that came out in 1985, which is called I Am The Night. I think they wanted to be Batman. <laughs> it was the night, at midnight, on Night Rocking. But that night was to be the last night of Night Rocking, as next Saturday night would bring back a fabled old knight in metal armour in the form of a new Saturday Night Rock show. It was Alan Fluff Freeman, 60 then, and not out. All right, not off. And by the time he was nearly 62, it was different. All right. So different, not even Alan Freeman was presenting his own show that night, as he was lost in the BBC car park. So young Thomas Vance sat in for the show instead. It was the 22nd of February, 1992. Here's a band out of Texas, really sort of, ooh, powerful vocalist. This guy's got so much menacing control in his voice. They're called Pantera. It's from their CD, Vulgar Display of Power. The track is no good. Before that, you heard Pantera, a track from their album. They're out of Texas. Used to be a, a straight-ahead rock band at one time. Gone through quite a number of changes, but always interesting. Lead singer is Philip Anselmo. He's got such a powerful voice, sort of built-in compressor in his throat. Vulgar display of power is the Pantera album. The track was called No Good, which is not an accurate description of how it sounded. I was just about to say, why did he say Pantera or No Good? But he did say, it's a great quote though, <laughs> built-in compressor in his throat. That's cool. Rock on, Tommy. The visceral sound of a bludgeoning fist to the jaw. This was a vulgar display of power. Good Lord. A built-in compressor in his throat. Thank producer Terry Date for that baldy grumble and grunt. Incidentally, located on the same Raper Avenue as Pantera's fan club was the studio. Tommy liked no good so much he revved up the buzzing chainsaw referee again a month later on the 6th of March on his own Friday night rock extravaganza. And we go back to the new entry at number 10, vulgar display of power by Pantera and this track, which is called No Good. <laughs> no good, that. He loved no good. He loved no good. Some say so no good was it that a monged out of his mind 20-year-old Liam Hewlett sat in his earthbound studio listening to the Friday Rock Show and said, I'm inspired to get up to no good and start his dance for the then in the work second Prodigy album. Absolute cowboy. <laughs> Not off. 
Meantime, Alan Freeman was awake and strapped into the DJ chair on Saturday the 30th of May 1992, playing some you-know-who from you-know-where. You are closer to the music on Formidable One FM, that is for sure. Right, let's go to Macclesfield, right? Hello, hello. Good evening to you, Matt and Tar, for coming through on the fluff, Ryan, right? A little Pantera and some Cowboys from Hell. Pantera and Cowboys from Hell. Incidentally, Matt dedicates this to everybody listening to the Friday and Saturday rock shows. Tar, Matt. There you are, Matt. How about that? Did you enjoy it? I hope so. Matter of fact, Matt. And for Matt Lawrence there in Knotsford near Macclesfield, and for all our rockers tonight, Pantera came along with the Cowboys from You Know Where. (laughs) You don't get radio like that anymore. The Cowboys from You Know Where. All right. Hello, hello, said Alan. But bye-bye, Tommy Vance. For soon the sharpened Damoclean sword of new 35-year-old BBC Radio 1 controller, Mr. Matthew Bannister, would descend upon Tommy's smoked neck. And he, with a raft of ageing Radio 1 disc jockeys, would be defenestrated from the BBC in 1993. Hack, wrench, skewer, screaming through the halls of Radio Centre with a chainsaw. Bruno Brooks, Gary Davies, cleaved in half. What do you say? Very Panterian. So, a quick last play of Pantera in 1992 was made on the 16th of October. Speaking of Matthew Bannister, did you know that he not only lost 5 million Radio 1 listeners under his husbandry, he also lost two wives, both of them dying during their marriage to him, one after the other, and his third wife divorced him. Suspicious. But she's still alive today. But I'm glad he failed because he messed up BBC Radio 1. I was I was still listening to it at the time. Was he involved in Top of the Pops as well? No doubt. Probably messed that up too. He's no good. Before that Pantera, who really are heavy. The track was Mouth for War. And that was the end of the Friday Rock Show. Figuratively, literally, all ends up. They were gone. End of an era. But as we saw recently when I was researching through the Kerrangs that Tommy went on to have some, what, phone sex chat lines set up for him? That you could phone up the 0898 numbers and get the latest news on Queensryche? It was the rock news line. I really need to know about Jeff Tate. Is he leaving Queensryche or is he not? No, I need to know. No, no, tell me, Tommy. In those pre-internet days, that was the only way we could find out. That or CFAX. Yeah, when you heard it on CFAX, you knew it was true, at least. <laughs> there was no fake news on CFAX. No. There's no way the algorithm was going to manipulate you into thinking something else that you already didn't think. Page 323 for the Liverpool news. You know that off by heart. There should be a little app now that would make all your social media feed just appear in CFAX form. That's a great idea. Bells There's ringing. not a nostalgia. Signed, sealed and snotted upon. Not off, all right? The cowboys from you know where. You scare me a bit there. I thought Fluff had actually entered your body. All right, Adrian. Thank you very much for listening to Nostalgia tonight, and we'll see you ready and raw next time. See ya. Goodbye, goodbye.